Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Gathering that this encouragement and this fellowship and time together is going to set the tone for the year that's ahead for all of us. I was so grateful last week that I got the chance to go to South Texas for Christmas with my family and an extended family gathered at my parents' house. And we celebrated Christmas together and we ate wonderful food together and we played lots of games together, which seems to be our routine just about every time we get together. In my family, we'll play just about any kind of game. We play yard games and card games and party games and video games and domino games and sports games, just about anything that you can compete at, we enjoy. We like a friendly competition with one another in my family, and we've got a handful of games that we come back to time after time after time. But then we also get excited about learning a new game every once in a while, and that happened a couple of times over the last week, which is a lot of fun except right at the beginning. Because right at the beginning, as everybody knows, the first step that's involved in trying a new game is that you have to learn the rules of the new game together. And I think that's bound to be everybody's least favorite part. You've got to go through those painstaking steps of reading the instructions. Usually I'm the one that gets nominated to read the instructions in my family for some reason or another. And you've got to familiarize yourself with how the game is played. And halfway through the instructions, somebody gets up and has something they forgot and they go, and then they come back and they didn't hear it all and they missed something important. I don't think I know anyone who looks forward to that part of the process, but you just can't play a new game without going through that. Because until you learn the rules, you can't decide on your strategy. And maybe most importantly, if you don't know the rules, you won't know if you're winning, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if you don't know who's winning and who's losing, you're not playing a game, you're just doing an activity together. Am I right? This is what playing the game is all about. I don't know how naturally competitive a person you are. You might be the type who can turn anything into a contest just for the fun of it, you know, who can get to the next red light the quickest. Maybe you're somebody who's not typically very aggressive, but you got real worked up with excitement last night watching TCU beat those Michigan Wolverines. Maybe, yeah, there you go. Maybe you don't care much about sports or games unless it's your grandbaby or your niece or nephew who happens to be playing, and then you become the loudest voice in the bleachers. Or maybe, maybe you're the type who honestly just wants everybody to have a good time but I'm convinced that no matter what drives you, no matter which of those personalities fits closest to yours, we all like the feeling of winning. We like to feel like we're succeeding. We like to feel like we're accomplishing and achieving our goals. And so whether we're competing against other human opponents or whether we're just challenging ourselves to be the best 
that we can be. We all find ourselves in this life striving for success, and not just when it comes to playing games. Today we're talking about what it looks like to live the good life, which is a phrase that likely conjures up some images in your mind, at least something that you can imagine when you think that's what the good life looks like. Whether we realize it or not, along the way, through all of our years of living, each one of us assembles a vision of what constitutes a good life. We assemble a vision for ourselves of the kind of dreams that we have for our future, what we hope our life will turn out to be. This vision is a picture that we see when we imagine ourselves being successful at the things that really matter to us. Now, for most people in the world, successful living has a few things in common. It's usually some combination of achievement, accumulation, longevity, relationships. The vision's a little bit different for each one of us, but it's usually some combination of some of those things. And if you were to describe your own vision, your own imaginary picture of the good life, if you were to describe that for somebody else around you, we would probably hear imprints from lots of different influences who have spoken into your life over time. The family you grew up in, the friends that you've been close to, the jobs that you've held, the media that has attracted your attention, all of those connections, all of those impressions in your life have shaped your idea of what success looks like. It's as if along the way, all of those different influences and influencers in your life have been downloading their strategy, their vision into your heart. And they've been telling you, this is my strategy for winning at life. These are the things that are important to me. These are the values that I hold. And we go through life gathering input to create a strategy that we believe in. And the strategy that we choose for achieving success in this life drives most of our decisions and our priorities, sometimes without us even being aware. Maybe you grew up in a family that emphasized achievement and hard work. And so for you, the mark of a life well lived is a life that's demonstrated a strong work ethic that has really been responsible and disciplined and shown up when you said you were going to show up and you did all of the things to provide for all of the people, this is part of the measure of success, the measure of a good life that was handed down to you by people who were influential to your heart. Maybe you learned early on that money is what makes the world go round. And so maybe for you, the vision of a good life is connected to the ability to buy and provide and feel secure because of what you've earned. There's all sorts of different ways that our outside influences and the voices and the people around us have helped us to shape our own idea of success. Conventional wisdom says that if you work hard, do your part, show up and save, that those will result in a life that's successful. But I want to tell you that as we come to know Jesus, 
And as we dive into the life and the teachings of Jesus, we discover that Jesus also has a vision for what the good life looks like. Jesus is one of those voices trying to speak into our hearts and give us an idea of a strategy for living the good life. And as we come to know Jesus, we discover that his vision and his values and his wisdom seem anything but conventional to us. In fact, when Jesus describes the good life, it doesn't sound very much like how most of us would draw it up ourselves. But I want to invite you. I want to invite you to tune in and lean in to the words of Jesus because as we look closely, we can discover that not only does Jesus know a thing or two, Jesus knows what he's talking about, but also Jesus' vision for the good life is good news which is what we're going to aim to start this morning. I want to take you to a passage in your Bible in Matthew chapter 5. If you've got a Bible with you or even the Heritage app on your phone, you can click in there and find your way to this passage. I, we are going to put these verses up on the screen, but I want to encourage you to at least bookmark Matthew chapter 5 and find this passage and familiarize yourself with it for the reasons I'm about to tell you. I, I want you to know about the importance of this particular section of the Scripture, and I want you to know about the source of it. Because Matthew was one of the many biographers who wrote an account of the life of Jesus. But Matthew in particular was more than a biographer. He was a friend and he was a follower of Jesus who understood how important it was for the world to know about Jesus. In fact, Matthew decided years after Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, he decided years after that, that if the memory of Jesus was to be preserved accurately, it was at least in part up to him. And so he wrote down his experiences. He wrote down the stories that he had heard and the stories he remembered and the things he had witnessed. And Matthew is one of the only biographers of Jesus to include a lengthy teaching of Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's the only, he's the only one that includes this entire lengthy teaching. And this takes up three chapters of Matthew's book, Matthew's, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I want to tell you that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, these three chapters in all of your big, thick Bible, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, could be the perfect place to start because this is the manifesto. This is Jesus describing what it looks like to be someone who follows his lead. Matthew places this sermon early on in Jesus's ministry. As far as we know, Jesus led a relatively quiet and private life up until the time that he was about 30 years old. And then he went and he was baptized by his cousin, John. And after that, Jesus moved away from his hometown. He invited a small handful of fishermen to come and travel with him. And he became this wandering, traveling preacher. And he was constantly preaching the same message. He said, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew describes it in chapter 4, the previous chapter to where we're studying today, and says, Jesus went through the region of Galilee 
teaching in their synagogue. So he's stopping along the way and he's meeting at their religious services and he's speaking up. And he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven and he's healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news spread about him. News about him spread all over Syria. If you look at a map that's way up to the north of Israel, news spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and people who were suffering severe pain and the demon possessed and people who were having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. And large crowds, not only from Syria, but even from the south and from the east, from all over Israel started to follow him. So if you picture what's happening in the life of Jesus at this moment, Jesus is traveling village to village. He's teaching this kingdom of heaven message. But all the while, he's being followed by crowds of suffering people. He's being tailed by people who don't easily travel. People who, it's a burden for them to move town to town. But people are finding their way to Jesus. He's being followed by these suffering families. These are people that live in a rural, agricultural society, and they live under the rule of the Roman Empire, which taxed them heavily. There was very little health care available. And so these families who have these loved ones with diseases and injuries, these people are down and out. These people are struggling. Life is not going according to plan. Life is not going smoothly for the people who are following Jesus. Their strategy for success was derailed a long time ago. Their strategies for success led them to feel like they had lost. And they were about as desperate for help as you could get. And in their society, there was a lot of judgmentalism that came with disease and disability. People commonly believed that if you were paralyzed or if you were severely ill, it was likely a punishment that God was inflicting upon you. And so most of these families lived in the shadow of judgment and isolation. This is the crowd of the people who were attracted to Jesus. These are the people who traveled miles, who left home, and who did what they could to locate and follow Jesus, these down-and-out people. These were people who were struggling. These were people whose backs were up against the wall. And in Matthew chapter 5, right after the verses that we just read, identifying who these crowds are, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus looks at this large crowd of these disheartened people, and Matthew says, Jesus sat down and started preaching a message. And it was a message like, unlike anything they'd ever heard. And I'm going to read the first 12 verses for you. Here's what Jesus says, beginning in verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I bet you noticed the one word that was the recurring theme in all of those verses, right? This word that kept coming up, this word that you've seen the hashtag on social media, this word, blessed. And I bet you can imagine this entire passage rides on the meaning of that word. Blessed is an important word throughout all of Scripture, and various translators have made attempts to capture its deep meaning, but some of our modern understandings of words get in the way. In fact, your translation, if you have your own translation of the Bible that you're using today, your translation may use the word happy in place of blessed. Your translation might say, happy are those who mourn which just sounds silly, doesn't it? Happy are those who are sad. We, tr we struggle with understanding some of the meaning because our modern understandings, our modern comprehension gets in the way. And, and we think of happiness as a, a feeling, an emotion that comes and goes. But when Jesus spoke this ancient Aramaic word and Matthew translated that word into Greek, they were using a word that seems to be saying God's favor is with you. God's favor is upon the groups that Jesus mentioned. God's favor is upon the poor in spirit. God's favor is upon those who mourn. God's favor is upon the meek. And when you remember who Jesus was speaking to, when you remember the crowds of people suffering, ostracized, ignored, and judged, when you remember the crowd of people that Jesus was speaking to with their real problems, many of whom felt like they were failing at life, failing at faith, here's Jesus looking at all of these people and saying, congratulations. Congratulations, the Lord is with you. And I don't think it's a very far stretch to imagine that some of these people heard Jesus say that and probably thought to themselves, really? Are you sure? Jesus, have you heard my story? Jesus, do you know who I am? Because it feels like I'm losing. You know, this teaching style was not uncommon in Jesus' day. It was a common strategy for religious teachers in Jesus' day to mention or to include a series of blessings like this in their teaching. We find some other examples of this even in the Bible. From some of the older to Old Testament passages, some of the Jewish teachers would use verses like Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one 
who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now that's a blessed statement, right? That's a statement that says, if you do your part, if you bury yourself in pursuing God's teaching, then you'll be really, really blessed. In fact, that's not the only one. There are lots of other famous sets of blessings, even some that aren't in our Bible, but that were handed down through Jewish tradition. There's one famous one from the wisdom of a rabbi named Ben Sirah who says, blessed is a man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, we're really getting into the nitty-gritty stuff here, right? But what's happening here is that when a teacher starts offering up these blessing statements, when a teacher starts saying, these are the kinds of people who are blessed, there's a lot going on because the teacher is also implying these are the kind of people who aren't blessed. But the teacher is sharing their vision for what a good life looks like. The teacher is downloading their strategy for living a life that's full. This is how they offered up their thesis about how the world works, their theory about how the game is played. And when a teacher said, this is the kind of person who is blessed, they're making a judgment call about what God cares about. Which is why Jesus' statements in Matthew 5 were such a shock. Because Jesus' blessings totally went against the grain. What Jesus said God blesses was different than what they had heard anywhere else. One of my favorite scholars put it this way. He says, instead of blessing the one who pursues wisdom and reason and develops a reputation as a sage... And instead of blessing the one who has a good family, who observes the whole law or Torah, or the one who has all the right friends and develops a reputation as, a righteous, as righteous or as a leader, Jesus blesses those whom no one else blessed. Don't miss that. Everyone had an idea. Everyone had a vision. Everyone had a strategy that says this is what leads to the good life. This is what the good life looks like. Everybody's got their own theory about what kind of strategies to employ, what kind of goals to pursue, what kind of trajectory to point your life at that says this is where I want to go. And Jesus points to something totally different. Jesus blesses those whom no one else blessed. And Jesus is not saying that we should make it our goal to be poor in spirit. He's not holding up mourning as the ideal emotion that we should always be striving for, as if it helps anyone for us to be constantly covered up with grief. What Jesus is saying is, I see you. I see you, and God sees you. And when you feel like you're losing, and when you feel like you're falling behind, and when you feel like you're being judged, and when you feel like you've been disregarded by everyone else, Jesus says, I see you. 
I don't forget about you. I'm with you. Jesus is putting his flag in the ground, announcing his vision for how the world works. And he's saying, you can't measure someone's blessing by what you can see in what they have or what they've accomplished. You can't measure how much God loves a person by what has been given to them, stored up in their home or in their bank account. You can't tell how much a person is blessed by what you can see. Jesus is saying that this world's scoreboard is inaccurate. And he's promising. He's promising and foretelling that God is intervening to take up the cause of the people in this world who are mistreated and discouraged. See, Jesus is inviting us to look at our world different. He's inviting us to look at ourselves differently. He's inviting us to look at our neighbors differently. He's inviting us to look at the rich differently. He's inviting us to look at the poor differently. He's inviting us to see God's creation the way God sees God's creation. He's inviting us to chase the good life with a new strategy, to build our lives on his teaching rather than our own instinct. Jesus is inviting us to trust his strategy rather than making it up ourselves as we go along. But that's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do because sometimes Jesus' strategy, tell me if I'm wrong here, sometimes following Jesus' strategy can make us feel like we're losing. Sometimes doing what Jesus has asked us to do makes it feel like we're falling behind. That shouldn't come as a shock to us. If we've read anything that Jesus had to say, we would remember that it was Jesus who said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever wants to, or whoever loses their life for me or for my sake will find it. This is who Jesus has always been and what Jesus has always said, but offering up our lives, giving up control, that's difficult. It's hard to put others first. It's hard to pray for your enemies. It's hard to bless those who persecute you and mistreat you. It's hard to turn the other cheek. It's hard to delay gratification. It's hard to keep your promises. It's hard to be a person of your word. Sometimes doing the things that Jesus asks us to do, following Jesus' vision for this life, feels like it's going to set us up for some moments of loss, some moments of being taken advantage of, some moments of being mistreated and not being able to get even. It feels like sometimes following Jesus' strategy is a losing battle. Because all of these things are hard. In fact, with human strength, it's impossible to do all of these things. But in this passage, in these blessing statements, Jesus is looking in the eyes of people who were struggling. Looking in the eyes of people who were suffering. Looking in the eyes of people who knew what it was like 
to be maligned and marginalized. And he was saying, trust me. Trust me. All of these other strategies, all of these other worldviews, all of these other goals are not going to end up leading you to be who God has created you to be. But Jesus says, trust me. We used to sing this old song. Maybe you've heard it before. I'm not going to sing it to you, but maybe you've heard your grandmother sing it. It said, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will, trust and obey. This is Jesus leaning in, looking at you and saying, do you trust me? Will you trust that the goals and the instructions and the vision that I have for your life will lead someplace good? There was another verse to that old song. Verse 3, there's not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. You got to familiarize yourself with that antiquated old English stuff, you know. But it's saying there's not anything that we go through, not any challenge we face, not any pain that we experience that... God is not making right for us. Not a grief nor a loss, not a frown nor a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. And then we'd sing that old chorus, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. As we begin a new year together, I wonder if we could believe that. I wonder if we could believe that for a moment. Because this, this, these teachings of Jesus that we've talked about that are so challenging, there's going to be moments going through this life when we're trying to do the Jesus thing, we're trying to turn the other cheek, we're trying to put others first, and it's going to feel like we're losing. There's going to be times in our life where it feels like I'm sick of mourning. I'm tired of feeling poor in spirit. These are the kinds of things, after all, the kinds of feelings that humans go to great lengths to try to avoid, right? We don't like mourning. When somebody's going through mourning, we send, them through the, we send them to the pastor. We send them to the counselor. We send them to somebody to help them get through it and get out of that fog, get out of that darkness. Because when we experience those kind of feelings in this life, we feel like something must be bad wrong. And when that happens, we start thinking, I wonder if there's a different strategy that would work better. Maybe if I just 
fought for my own way. Maybe if I just didn't invest myself so much in other relationships. Maybe if I walled myself off and took care of me first. When we start feeling discomfort in this life as we're trying to follow Jesus, we start thinking to ourselves sometimes, maybe there's a different way to do this. And Jesus looks at you and he says, but do you trust me? Will you trust me? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I know that this is a time of year when we're all thinking about goals and aspirations, resolutions for our new year, hopes for our future. And I want to invite you to ask yourself this question in light of the teaching of Jesus. What is your strategy for making 2023 a success? What will it take for 2023 to be part of the pursuit of living the good life for you? Because your answer to that question will determine how you spend your energy, how you spend your time, how you spend your attention, how you spend your resources. Your answer to this question, what is my strategy? What do I think really leads to the good life? That's going to determine how you use 2023. And Jesus is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust and obey. Now that might mean that you have to start investigating some of the things that Jesus is asking of you. It might mean that you have to start living into, leaning into some more of Jesus' teaching so you could be familiar with what obedience looks like. But this is the big question. Whose strategy for success is the one that's trustworthy? And Jesus says, trust me. Try me. Give it a chance and see if the life that I led and the life that I exemplified and the life that I demonstrated and called you to doesn't lead you to more peace and more hope and more joy. Jesus wants to give you the good life. And he's inviting you to trust him.